Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm Abby. And you're listening to Did The Reading, the podcast where we did the reading so you don't have to. This is the first time we've ever recorded in person. Face to face. Although in weird circumstances, because we are sat <laughs> on quite the setup. <laughs> but... Jess is sat on a bale of sawdust, so I mean, it really is the countryside lifestyle. Um, but yeah, what a dream come true. And in many ways, doesn't it remind you of the book we're reading this week, The Bloody Chamber? I mean, Abby's in like a head-to-toe floral get-up rather yeah. than any kind of white silk, but... Exactly so. I mean, and I'm surrounded by bugs. It's <laughs> kind of like, I suppose, how they felt in the book when there were all those like lilies in the room. I don't know. Wouldn't that be a bit buggy? So is this the first time you've read The Bloody Chamber? <laughs> Um, like most things, at some point I covered it in uni, but it was very speedy and it was in my like fairy tale modules. It was under very specific circumstances in terms of like we read maybe like a handful of stuff each week, like a handful of stories, and then they were like, We're gonna look at use like this theoretical approach. So this one was in the psychoanalytical week, which was kind of as painful as you might imagine. But yes, it's only small. Yeah. What about you? I mean, I think I wrote a very, like, contrived prelims essay on it. Um, I wrote something on, like, animal transformation in fairy tales, and, like, I'd been to a set of lectures. Oh, I remember reading that for you. Yeah, I'd, like, been to a set of lectures, and I'd read, like, the theory that was suggested in the lectures. So I was like, any of you guys heard of Levi Strauss? And everyone was like, yes. (laughs) But, yeah, so, I mean, I really, I think, you know, I really like the story. It's always, it's very evocative. It's very visceral. But yeah, it has been a fair while since I last visited it. And maybe it has been also for the listeners who would enjoy the description you can provide at this point. I'll do my best because I still feel I slightly very sorry bad for everyone that had to listen to me try and desperately <laughs> give a summary of the catcher and the rye, um, which you can find last week. Anyway. This is famously based on the Bluebeard myth. So it starts with this girl who's like, I'm going to be married to this very rich, mysterious and slightly lion-like man. And they rock up at his castle that is periodically like cut off by the sea with the tide. That's the one I was looking for, thank you. Yeah, like Abby said, it's very visceral. My slightly less professional description is, like, creepy. And so then they're in the castle. There's, like, a slightly terrifying first honeymoon night involving a lot of mirrors, a lot of orchids, and, like, a lot of animal imagery, which we'll get to later. And then her husband is like, I've got some important business in New York, wherever it is. So he gets called away, and she's like, great. And he leaves her a massive bunch of keys and of course it's like but there is one key that you cannot yes Abby that you cannot use under any circumstances so of course as soon as she leaves she's like I'm gonna do some snooping so she like goes around his office finds all these kind of like evidence of like past lovers which she already knew about but she has this whole moment of being like I'm a child and then she somehow quite easily finds, obviously down like a dark winding corridor, the room which like is opened by the one key that she was told not to use. Yeah. 
So she uses the key and goes in and finds a like a bluebeard's cave full of like torture devices, old wives, all dead, a couple of corpses. Yeah, wives is probably a bold term actually. They're all corpses, yeah. <laughs> um, and like a lot of skulls, a lot of different torture devices, and it's all terrifying. There's that one image of the bare rocks of the walls like sweating, which always really stays with me. Yeah. Anyway, so in her fright, she drops the key into like a pool of blood and then rushes out, um, closes the door, la 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 la, can't get the blood stain off the key. And then her husband comes back and he was like, I was duped. They didn't want to do any business with me, so I'm home, don't even worry. Obviously discovers what's happened, does this slightly weird ritual where he pushes the key into her forehead and then she has this like indelible stain of red mm. on her face. And then he's like, guess it's time for your execution. So dresses her all in white, the guy into a courtyard and he's about to cut her head off. I miss quite the important bit of the music tuner. The piano tuner. There's a piano, piano tuner. tuner. That's all There's a piano tuner. tuner. She plays the piano. This guy tunes the piano. Anyway. And luckily, her mother rocks up on a horse, just in the nick of time, and shoots her husband. And then they all live in this slightly niche happily ever after, where she then marries the piano tuner and her mum, and then like lives with her mum. Yeah. That's basically it. That's all you need to know. Don't even need to read this book now. Okay, Abby, for our first point, do you want to tell me about the obvious, like, significant slash kind of, like, influence of fairy tales and the fairy tale genre on this book? I certainly would. What, a, what an excellent question, Jess. It's almost like we discussed this just before before we started recording. Yeah, so obviously this book is a collection of um, kind of retold, sort of more female perspectives in archaic sort of 1700s fairy tales and you've got a couple of different bits and bobs going on there. I think obviously um, it's one of the kind of outstanding versions of like the fairy tale retelling, but obviously there are loads like it. I mean, like I think I did Transformations by Anne Sexton oh, is yeah. another one. I'm trying to think of other ones because I know there are loads of them. It's like obviously almost a bit of a kind of cliche at this point for people to do a modernised fairy tale. Yeah, no, because we were having a brief conversation about this earlier. I didn't realise it was written as long ago as 1979. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. even if you think about, like, Dismaland, do you remember that, like, whole Banksy thing? Yeah. That all was um, fairy tale hell. Yeah, well, it's one of those things where if you're like, oh, what's the influence of fairy tales? And it's like, the most obvious answer is, like, pretty wide. Like, literally yeah. everything has echoes of it. As in, like, even if you just think about, on a slight tangent, the influence of, like, like Disney on people's childhoods like this is probably the slightly less child-friendly version yeah. you could argue yeah. yeah i mean i think arguably it's very difficult to know where fairy tales end and patriarchal mythos mm. begins because i mean i think there are still things where it's fairy tales can be considered as a kind of like ruling or like controlling myth where yes. they're being used to reinforce hegemony of aspiration to marriage and ultimate morality helping to rule over immorality and bring you happiness which always looks the exact same which is you know domestic order um 
and I mean arguably you can say Bloody Chamber does or doesn't fit in in certain ways and like having to go through the horror is something that can be conceived as not fitting into that mythos but if you like take it at its very most basic linear progression from single to happily married mm. I think that can kind of like it's difficult to know whether that like is a fairy tale thing or a I mean, like, the bloody chamber could have worked even if it wasn't from those perspectives because what it is really, I don't know, riffing on is archaic views of marriage. Yeah, like, I think the most... If someone was like, what's the bloody chamber? The easiest way to describe it is to be like, it's a like a feminist rethinking of fairy tales. Sure, yeah. But I think it does... Like, it plays with stuff a lot. But then I think another question of whether it, by, like, 2020 feminist standards, it successfully overturns or, like, actually challenges patriarchal narratives that's like a different question i think yeah and i mean i think again it's like that ray bradbury thing whereas i think as it was at the um, beginning of the kind of genre as a whole mm-hmm. the kind of retelling of fairy tales it doesn't it's not as challenging yeah. as it could be yeah but i mean i think uh, fairy tales are so persistent in every part of the way we live i mean even i think you can conceive of pretty women mm-hmm. that kind of thing yeah even i suppose shit like mean girls Mm. is kind of it he like comes in and it's like i like your trousers what is it she says she likes oh her skirt her, her skirt, skirt. she's and like oh she... my mom's from the 70s <laughs> yeah exactly do you know what i mean like it's all that kind of stuff and then suddenly she's wearing pink on wednesdays um... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i forgot to say what i meant to say at the top which was that i want to challenge you in this episode to say like kind of and you know literally no times that's mean yeah because it's really difficult to cut (laughs) (laughs) give me your cloud password and like move on right (laughs) yeah i'll just go and like i think so the next one we kind of wanted to talk about was a psychoanalytic point obviously because you had used this on your psychoanalytic module and we've been interested in looking at the way that the story constantly kind of aligns sex and death which I suppose is most like psychoanalysis perspective, closest to that Freudian idea of sex death drive, which yeah. is basically this kind of alignment between consummation of a relationship and movement towards death. So you sort of see it in, I suppose, stuff like Lady Lazarus by Sylvia Plath. <laughs> For example. For example. <laughs> um, And this, even in the fact that, for example, in her marriage bedroom, she is laying down on that bed, but it becomes almost her fear because of all the lilies around her body as she's there and the way in which she is kind of um, perceived. She's watching herself as though, like, on the bed. For goodness sake, there's no respect. Um... I did an absolutely awful job of describing that, particularly considering I studied it and considering doing it with my desk, but... I, did I tell you I was going to do that? I was going to do rats for Sex Death Drive. You did not. I was going to do rats, and I was going to do it via Fight Club, All Dark, No Stars, and something else. And it was going to be really good, and then I told my tutor about it, and he was like... No. <laughs> and I was like... I don't know. You know, rats. <laughs> anyway, probably wouldn't have worked. What were your thoughts on the sex death drive? <laughs> I think that's what's so uncomfortable about a lot of it is in the story itself, obviously, she takes these tropes of fairy tale and I feel like fairy tales in their like most basic form are just like cultural narratives and 
basically just like part of our cultural consciousness by this point. But she kind of takes them and in flipping them on their head or making them obvious to the point of being able to then be criticised, I guess, almost caricatures them a bit. Like, I feel like when she comes back and back again to points, she describes him as leonine and yeah. and draws attention to blood and like the colour white. But I suppose, like, almost at its most basic, issue at hand is that in all fairy tales, like, sex is the underlying point of all yeah. of it. Everything is reliant on sex. But it's also the point where... Where our understanding and our narrative ends, because we're yes, never going to exactly. access it. Well, that's in the most basic, like, narratives that, like, always end in marriage. That's, like, a more tame version of it. Because there is still an extent... I mean, like, you can't change too many details about like very well-known fairy tales but there is still an extent to which like she has sex once and then like nearly gets decapitated you know what i mean like to really yeah really simplify things yeah um which arguably is a bit of a obedience narrative what's it called yeah. what is that like because that's a really interesting um i don't know what the theoretical name is which is bad name. But there is an element of like the. It's that kind of Foucault thing again, though, isn't it? Of course. <laughs> Bring it back to my uh, old boy. But there is an element of salaciousness of his previous wives is made a point of. Yeah. And she has that point where she's going through his desk and and she kind of realizes that these other wives were much more experienced in a sexual sense as well as just like older mm. than her. And he makes that point of being like, oh. We don't actually have to like hang the bloodied bedsheets out the window anymore, haha. <laughs> and that's quite uncomfortable. And also, that's the point where she realizes that she is the only one of his wives that was a virgin when they married. When they married. Yeah. No, I get what you mean. I think it is just. Um, I think even you could sort of say that the sex death drive exists as the overarching narrative of the whole, even once our kind of blue beard character has passed the sort of narrative moves towards this there's a kind of constant sense of her mortality and the fact that she's going to have that stain on her forehead till she dies and, and there is again that kind of consummation towards her relationship with the piano tuner mm. so it's kind of this inescapability of her experience as a woman within that narrative that in a way you can consider it as as you grow older your sexual currency diminishes so almost when she sort of stops being desired, she stops being alive within the narrative. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. That's definitely that makes sense in the story and also just like as a theoretical. Thank you. Um like there's that Sartre, if you want to reach out. Jesus well. I'll say this quickly because we're nearly over time. But there is yeah. this really interesting essay I read by um Please, in advance, forgive my French accent, but Helen Sixou. And yeah. on, like, the born-again woman. Did I make you read that essay? No, but I might have read it. No, the newly-born woman. Oh, my God, I'm misquoting it. Anyway, really and it's just... just so it's true. I'm sorry, Helen. Um, and it's about the idea of, of the Sleeping Beauty myth yeah. and the idea that you awaken, like, exactly with the kiss right. of a man into yeah. a perfectly like, domesticated woman yeah and then that idea of being born again outside of that and coming to this like newer knowledge like it's like a 1960 but again it's like that kind of curative moment isn't it where it's like the sort of disobedience of the idleness of lying there for ages and ages and ages yeah. and only a man can kind of bring her back to that many problems <laughs>
Okay, so there are some pretty uh, bold interior design choices in this book, I think it'd be fair to say. And uh, I sort of wanted to ask you what you felt that Bobby Burke would suggest were he to witness this house in person. Like, he, he kind of comes through, Anthony's like, ooh, avocado and shrimp on the menu, and Bobby's like, ooh, where are we going to go from here? How am I reshaping this Luke? To reshape your life um like like um what i would do first is knock down the wall um that was created by your negative relationship with your mother <laughs> well i mean the most obvious point is bobby's probably going to be like i would remove the chamber probably are you sure like... you wouldn't just pop a carpet down <laughs> just, bobby's like this blood is not shifting um He's like, if you're going to have the blight, you've got to complement it with a bowl fireplace. Perhaps give it some proper walls so those rocks aren't like sweating. And like add some windows for some natural light. Delightful. Yeah. The other point that I always get very hung up on is the number of mirrors in that bedroom. I'm not about that. It's a bit much. And I think it's also because it's that line where she's like a dozen somethings, like impaled a dozen. Yeah. It has some husband's impaled a dozen blushing brides isn't it yeah something like that anyway so that's quite a horrifying image mm. and i think that could you know improve the feng shui <laughs> of the bedroom i mean like i think i said to you earlier i think those bold gold dolphin shaped taps are uh, such a statement there used to be this book series i can't remember actually it's called secrets at st jude's actually i said i couldn't remember it's, it's called secrets at st jude's and in the opening sequence, this really rich Californian girl describes the bathroom she's designed for herself. And it is um, pink tiles with gold taps. I remember it always being like, wow, what a statement. But like, I'm just saying, that's the energy that Bluebeard is bringing into his bathroom. He's like, mm, pink, gold <laughs> dolphin taps. <laughs> they are a bit excessive. Also, they come up like two or three times where she's like those dolphins were staring at me as I tried to like scrub the blood off the key because if it's a tap it's just like vomiting water I just don't think that's very Abby doesn't understand fine bathroom art I just would go for a kind of classic tap fitting more of like a waterfall effect yeah Yeah, I always think that is very tasteful I don't think Bobby would like care for it if he came in he'd be like it seems a bit overstated you know when they like do that bit where they like walk around the house without them and they're like, <laughs> they, like yeah they've done the bit where they've been polite and like joking and then they're suddenly like we've had so much work to do <laughs> they're like look at this bathtub covered in blood <laughs> i don't even know how we're gonna clean this off i think you'd also be quite off put as many people would be at the kind of volume of flowers in this house i just think it's excessive like you've already said it's quite funeral-esque yeah i was saying to you earlier i feel like bobby would be going like just a couple of tips for you here you might not have realized but um these lilies are giving a kind of funeral vibe um which is not necessarily what you want for honeymoon so like oh funerals are commonly associated <laughs> with lilies and bluebeard would be there having to be like oh um oh god i never realized i realized that wheel in the sunflowers <laughs> <laughs> he's like having to absolutely crush his vibes by being like orchids and so every like subsequent wife is being like oh, i'm just finding it difficult to read the room and he's like it was so much easier when there were lilies in here but bobby said i couldn't have them he's also made me get rid of all those creepy suggestive art pieces oh my god it's like library of weird stuff it kind of reminds me of the handmaiden actually did i ever make you watch that i don't think so 
Yeah, it's like a kind of creepy suggestion. But it's all those ones where it's like, if you just do a quick Google, the three or four paintings he mentions are all about either death or virgins or a combination of the two, and it's kind of like... It's not interior decor. Go for a classic Ikea print if I were him. Do you think I would work on Made in Chelsea? Work on it? Be good. Oh, as a... A I thought you meant it's like a producer. I was like, sure. Sure, whatever you want, hon. Right. <laughs> You're like, I will not answer whether you would actually work. You're going to save your self-esteem. God, my hair is grim. I'm so sorry. I'm seeing the reflection of it in my phone. Right. Now <laughs> it's time I'm not for... even going to correct you because you didn't say I'd be good on Made in Chelsea. Now it's time for our usual Goodreads review. Abby, are you ready? And by the way, this is taken from halfway through. I have to mention the fact that so many of the reviews of this book rave about the feminist undertones of the stories. You. Um, and I want to know how in the world anyone sees that in these stories. The female characters aren't any more quote-unquote empowered than the originals. They still fall in love with stupid men, allow themselves to be doormats, and are shallow, vain, and only seem to care about clothes and money. The only thing feminist about it is that it definitely paints men in a bad light. <laughs> Every single one was either weak, empathetic, or psychotic. That's obviously referring to the collection as a whole. But what are your thoughts? I mean, first of all, we don't use the word psychotic. Thank you. Just saying. I think, um... And also, obviously, hating men is not feminist. Just they thought I'd pop that I'd in. I'd be like, head. just off the top, a couple of couple corrections. Of I got in here. Um, I think it's interesting. I think certainly in this case, she is not the world's strongest in a traditional sense character but i think it is a misconception of a lot of literature that for a woman to be a strong character she has to be able to save the day be the person who just single-handedly challenges everything and you know makes this big turnaround i think what the collection offers us is a variety of women with different experiences and perceptions and stories that centre on those experiences rather than perceiving them through a male gaze. And I think that is what makes the collection feminist in a kind of 1970s way. But I suppose if you consider it in its most basic sense, it, it does do more than other books do, and at its most basic, more than other fairy tales do. But yeah. I don't know, what do you think? No, I agree. I think it is, I would call it feminist, but it is, it's because it, like you say, it centres women and their experiences and does all things considered pretty radical things to turn over and like slightly upset these like entrenched patriarchal narratives Mm. that are cultural consciousnesses by this point Mm. i think that's a word anyway i mean um, i suppose also you know if we consider that final moment where the day is saved by her mother rather than the piano tuner that is quite a kind of literal moment of female power yes and i think the iteration of feminism if you like that hinges on this kind of like maternal power and the importance of maternal influence or like just like the idea of mothers and like genie genealogy is that the right word but i think also it's like the fact that you've got that familial relationship usurping the romantic one like it's ultimately shown to be the more important of the two the fact that her mother is the one who can save the day her mother is the one who can provide the emotional support she needs first and foremost even though her mother isn't always physically there she's the person who sort of has primacy and she intuits that she's in trouble purely by her like crying over the gold taps that's what makes her 
<laughs> but I mean, also, to some extent, the fact that, like, then they kind of uh, break down that traditional marital structure by incorporating her mother so centrally. Yeah, because I think also the easiest way to take issue with the patriarchal institution of marriage without her not marrying anyone completely yeah. is to have her mother be the one that saves her. Just to pull out like one sentence about slightly what I now realise is quite a long quote that I gave you. Um, when it says the only thing feminist about it is that it definitely paints men in a bad light. Yeah. Obviously you pointed out, A, that's not how feminism, feminism works. works. <laughs> but also like I don't know if it even does so much as like obviously Bluebeard's in a pretty bad life, that's because he's a horrible person and like that's because that's how the fairy tale works i think that the descriptions of men are not even necessarily negative so much as highly highly reductive in the same way that a lot of women are in fairy tales where they become the secondary characters without motivations without understanding without dimension without any kind of insight into their like thinking or mental processes and so it's easy to think of like for example bluebeard and the piano tuner in this story is not exciting or positive versions of men, but I suppose in a way it's sort of flipping that structure on its head rather than it being... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's really interesting because actually if you think about it on like a very basic level, the narrative that Angela Carter in this case is like working with yeah. is like an extremely basic one like most fairy tales you can say in three sentences yeah. so then the idea of having a character that's really it doesn't have any like motivations or depth to it yeah. you can read that as a gendered thing but in some yeah. ways like you say like it occurs it's a aspect of all the characters and it's just kind of like contributes to that fairy tale style yeah. i wanted to talk about the stain so now I'm going to drop a couple of ideas in a kind of non-sensory way and you may contribute and okay. interpret them in a way that makes sense. Okay, so obviously the stain on her forehead mimics the stain on her bed sheets, and it's that kind of loss of virginity moment, um, but it's also about her kind of connection with generations of women who came before her it's a kind of uh like matriarchal thing like her becoming part of this collection of wives yeah but i suppose also i had kind of considered it as a kind of representation of guilt or of healing i mean kind of a similar reference is sort of the outdone spot moment in macbeth but also I suppose you could consider kind of the marking on the forehead of Ash Wednesday, kind of the moment in baptism. Yeah. So that was sort of some other things I'd thought of. So I kind of wanted to know what you yes. felt. Yes, well, I think it's linked without making too groundbreaking a point of like the biblical reference in terms of she stains the key, which then stains her when she like gains the forbidden knowledge or whatever oh, yeah. of the or whatever <laughs> should not be so dismissive of this um knowledge of like mankind um and then i guess like playing into the myth of even like a fall from innocence because her naivety and like we've said in quite like an uncomfortable way her like childishness yeah. or just like her youth is made quite a point of what were the other bits you talked about 
mimics the stain on her bed sheets. Yes. I mean, the idea of, like, I don't want to spoil too many, like, Disney stories, but, like, the idea of virginity does just run through almost everything in quite an uncomfortable way. And I think it's um, obviously not a thing, except, like, culturally speaking. But then obviously it becomes significant when it's like culturally given currency, yeah. as in these situations. Yeah. I don't know what that point is, but there you go. Like, I suppose it's an opportunity to bring in like other references. Do you, want, you know more about Macbeth than I do, do you want to? Yeah, so obviously that's the moment where um, Lady Macbeth has killed the gods on Macbeth's behalf, and she dreams and is sleepwalking that her hands are still covered with the blood and she can't seem to get the blood off her hands however much she washes them which i think is you know quite a like telling moment and also in that part of the book is sort of one of the moments where we get a sense of grief or guilt from lady Macbeth, who kind of prior to that has been quite unrelenting yeah really going for it in pursuit of uh that crown the what am i trying to say the kind of idea of consequences being unavoidably brought down on the head of a woman is kind of the slightly hack way i've decided to summarize that um but because i think it's also significant it's not that she gets the stain when she's in the chamber yeah it's that he's like oh well naturally i'm not gonna have to do this weird baptismal process Well, another fab week. I lose my mind every time. I'll be That was really fun. Jess, perhaps you would like to tell our extremely dedicated, almost obsessive audience how to find us on social media. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at did the reading pod and same on twitter and you can also email us at didthereadingpod at gmail.com also we would love if you can rate and or leave like a written review on apple podcasts and if you follow us on spotify it makes it easier for other people to find us fabulous all right we will see you next week thank you for listening Bye. bye